Well, good morning. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ and your brothers and sisters in Christ in Chicago. I am indeed Ben Steele, um, and I am very excited to be here this morning. I am the offspring of one pastor, Julie Steele. Um, so you can see the resemblance of the, the good lookingness. Um, <laughs> As I was preparing for this morning, I got to thinking that, in fact, it was 10 years ago, this week, actually, uh, that I got to preach my very first sermon uh, at all, and it was right here at this congregation. I had just finished my first semester at North Park University. I was a a fresh-faced 18-year-old kid, and um, in the past 10 years, it's amazing to think about everything that has transpired, at least in my own life. As we think about the closing of another year... You may be reflecting on on how this year or these years have gone for you. Um, It's amazing to think about everything that's happened in 2014. And for some of you, maybe this is a year that you want to put way in the the rearview mirror of your life and say, 2014, let's move on to 15. But there are a lot of things that we could reflect on, things that you may have learned, ways you've matured, championships we've won, go Hawks. But as we, as we reflect on 14 and we look into 15, there may be also some, some hopes and wishes, resolutions we'd like to see for 2015. Maybe 2015 is the, the year you finally lose that 10 pounds you've been wanting to lose for 15 years now. Uh, maybe it's trying, trying a new language, learning a new language, or traveling to a new country. Whatever it may be, read a certain amount of books that you have hopes and dreams for 2015. As I begin to think about 2015 and the the wide open position we could take to the year, the, the amount of possibilities that we have for 2015, I began to think about hopes and wishes for my own life. And ultimately, what, if anything, is the difference between a hope and a wish? What are some things that one might wish for? What'd you say, Barry? <laughs> Superpowers. Superpowers, okay. To catch the ball and score a touchdown every time. Might wish for that. What are some other things we might wish for? Anything? Money. Money? All right, let's get that bank account a little bit fuller. All right. What about a hope? What's something you might hope for? Reconciliation. Wow, you should come up here and do this. Why am I? Yeah. Um, anything else we might want to hope for? No. Well, I got a hand. All right. Uh, um, I wish I could do anything. You wish you could do anything? Okay. All right. Yeah. I think in our society, we may have a bit of a problem with the language we use at times. Often... I think we're, we frequently interchange a hope and a wish, and maybe even a dream and some other words in the thesaurus out there, but we don't use them in specific terms. It's just whatever we don't have that we might want. Any unfulfilled desire might turn into either a wish or a hope. I really hope the Seahawks win today, right? I really hope that that cop didn't have a radar gun on my car, 
I really hope that my flight isn't delayed. Hope can be used in so many different ways and contexts. It was even used in, in our president's political campaign as a, as a powerful rallying cry, right? But is that what hope really is? Is it hoping to not get a speeding ticket? Is that what Paul, in his letter to the Romans, is referring to? Wishful thinking. I don't think so. And I think it's important for us as Christians to get our vocabulary right. Because vocabulary influences our, not only our imagination, but how we go back and interpret Scripture. So if my idea of hope is nothing more than wishful thinking along the same lines of a Seahawks victory or not getting a speeding ticket, well, that's going to change how we read Paul. That's going to change how we read the Scriptures. That's going to change the way we imagine what God's activity and work in this world is. So we need to be very careful about the kind of language we use. And we need to be careful about what it was that Paul was most likely referring to when he was talking about hope. And I don't think it was wishful thinking. What do I think the difference between a a wishful thought or wishful thinking and hope is? Well, ultimately, I think wishful thinking doesn't necessarily have to be based in reality or truth. There's There's no certainty that the cop didn't have a radar, doesn't have a radar gun. There's no certainty as well as we're playing, that the Seahawks are going to win today, right? That's a desire. It may or may not be fulfilled. And yet, that's not what Paul talks about here. It doesn't have to have a connection to truth. Now, in Paul's letter to the Romans, if hope was simply wishful thinking, then one of two things would would occur. Because God says that hope, or Paul says that hope doesn't disappoint, That means that God's actually going to fulfill our, quote-unquote, hopes or wishful thinking. And I don't know about for you, but I have a lot of desires, sometimes wishes, that are unloving, uncaring, destructive, harmful. And it doesn't seem like the God that I read about and experience in the Bible is the kind of God who's going to grant those kind of wishes, if it were. Right? God's not that genie. I have... I have certain thoughts and desires at times when I'm angry or upset or depressed or whatever it may be. Those certainly aren't things that God would would want to fulfill. The second option is if if wishful thinking and hope are the same thing, that, that God doesn't fulfill those wishful thoughts and therefore hope does disappoint. So then Paul's a liar and wrong. Neither of these two options are acceptable. Paul says that hope does not disappoint. Now, to to get a better understanding of of Paul's argument here in chapter 5 of Romans, I think it's it's helpful to understand where in the letter Paul is is in his argument and progression. Chapter 5 is a crucial kind of hinge on on his arguments. Chapters 1 through 4, Paul is writing to the Roman church about the justification that we as Christians experience through Jesus' death and resurrection. Not only for the Jew, he says, but for the Gentile as well. For all of humanity. That that grace is experienced through faith. That Jesus Christ, in fact, did die and was raised from the dead. Paul takes four chapters to establish this argument. Of what is, what has occurred on on the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The following chapters are a natural outcome or flowing out of that ramification of Jesus' act. 
chapters 6 through 8 discuss the life of the Christian, the, the struggle with sin, the experience of hope, what it means to be filled with grace. And so chapter 5 transitions, it bridges from what happened with Christ and our experience with that justification to the natural outcomes of what it means once we have been and are being justified by God. So chapter 5 plays a crucial role. He begins his chapter by saying, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. His whole point is that this part of his, the next part of his argument is hinging on what he has said before. Therefore, because of all this other stuff I've said, all this other stuff that we've just gone through, now we can proceed to this. So therefore, because we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that Paul has been arguing for those chapters, 1 through 4, he is now summing up in a single sentence, essentially. This is a summary of his entire argument. That justification is equal to peace with God through, through Jesus Christ. Now, we may have different notions of peace, or one person might think of peace in a different way than, uh, than another. But I can tell you that, that for Paul and his Jewish mind, he had shalom in mind. The, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. And sometimes we think of peace as simply the absence of violence or hardship, whatever it may be, conflict. But that's not shalom. Shalom is so much richer and fuller. Shalom is just not two neighbors uh, ignoring one another, right? Like my neighbor and me. I've got this old crotchety neighbor who yelled at my wife and I just about decked him. And now we just don't talk to each other, right? Let's be honest, that's not peace. I don't see him, I don't talk to him, and he doesn't talk to me. But that's not really peace, and that's not what Paul is saying we have with God because of Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's a, an actual relationship. Many, many later theologians are going to expand this idea of peace and include the idea of friendship. That to be at peace with someone is actually be, uh, in the positive sense, in, an, in a positive relationship, in a friend-like relationship. So in some ways, Paul is saying that because of Jesus Christ, we actually have access and are friends with God. One who wishes well for the other, desires the good of the other, right? These are things that friends do for one another. This is just not, I'm keeping you at arm's distance, I don't talk to you, and let's just get along here. This is so much richer and fuller. This is what we have experienced through God, or through Jesus Christ with God. And Paul reminds us in verse 2 when he states that we have that peace with with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Paul is not saying that this is uh, prescriptive, that this is what ought to be, that if you are justified or you experience a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you ought to have peace with God. This is a declarative statement. This is what is. Paul is referring to reality. Whether it feels like it or not, being in a relationship with Jesus Christ means that you are friends with God, that you are at peace with God. Paul is reminding the Roman church of their identity. So many times in Scripture, we need to be reminded of who we are. Right? 
The, some of the most powerful times that I, I have in Scripture are when I hear and I read that the Holy Spirit is telling me who I am, reminding me of who I am, not, as an, not only as an individual in Christ, but as a collective body, who we are as the people of God, and therefore what we are called to be, right? So Paul is reminding the Romans, and Paul is reminding us that we are at peace with God, that we do have that friendship with God. And not only that we have that friendship, but that we can rejoice, as he says, we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Some translations even say boast. We can boast in the glory of God. Which is interesting because earlier in the letter, Paul had put a negative connotation on that same word that is now translated as rejoice or boast. Because it was done so in the context of boasting in our own or one's own abilities. In fact, this is at the heart of what hope is. It transitions from our own understandings of our abilities to what we know and who we know of the character of God. One who is loving, trustworthy, gracious, powerful. That when we transition from a position of being able to be confident in who I am to being confident in what God has done for me and is doing for me, then we are allowed to hope properly. And, that, and we certainly should rejoice in that. He continues on saying, Not only so, rejoicing in the, or boasting in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know suffering produces perseverance. Now this might seem uh, odd or, or at least stand out to you, that we should rejoice when we suffer, That's certainly not something that the world teaches. I would also argue that if we take it in the wrong context, even from a Christian perspective, we might be thinking that somehow Paul is is encouraging us to be masochistic in some way or invite beatings and, and torture and whatever it may be. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. In fact, I believe that Paul has an understanding of what suffering marks. And that is in the Old Testament notion of the day of the Lord. Or what we can see in Christ Jesus. That Christ Jesus exemplifies being able to to boast or rejoice in sufferings. For it is in Christ that he, he is exposed and beaten and tortured and crucified. Suffers with and for us. That allows him to then enter into that glory three days later on, on Easter morning. That the resurrection happens because of Good Friday. And they need one another. So we don't, Paul isn't asking us to go out on the street and ask somebody to to smack you upside the head or, or do something like that. But when we do suffer, Paul would argue that it is a mark of our own path to glory. Just as Christ suffered on his path to glory. The call of the Christian is to imitate the life of Christ, which ultimately ended in a violent, brutal death, only to be raised three days later. That's the call. Any any claim on a Christian life that doesn't have suffering as part of it, I would argue is no full Christian claim at all. Now, when he says to rejoice in sufferings, the other tendency we might have is to actually say in somehow that Paul is allowing us to negate the pain 
that suffering and violence and persecution may, may occur, the loss in family relationships, whatever it may be, that somehow because we can rejoice in it, it really doesn't mean that it's happening or very significant. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul isn't negating the pain of a lost loved one. Paul isn't negating the, the pain of, of suffering medical illness. Right? That's not what Paul is not trying to, to sweep that under the rug. Suffering, though, if anything, produces a realization in us that we can't do this alone, that we are, in fact, dependent on God. And that is what we should rejoice in because suffering can lead us, can draw us closer to the life of God. And that is something to rejoice about. Paul goes on in, chapter, in verse 4 to say that perseverance produces character and character hope. That that perseverance that we have through the experience of suffering, that that ability not only to withstand the pains and, and the sins and the evils of this world, but also to find meaning in those, just as we find meaning in Christ's own suffering. That that's what perseverance is. And when we do that, when we can look to God in our own sufferings, that that produces character. Character, or in some translations, tried character, tested character. The kind of thing that over time begins to become part of who we are. That is character. Now that can only develop when it's being tested, when it's being tried, when it's being pushed and stretched and developed. That, that occurs through our suffering. And not only just suffering, because there are plenty of people who are suffer, but it doesn't produce perseverance. Because they don't use that suffering as an opportunity to grow closer to God. They don't cry out to God as we see in the Psalms or Lamentations. As confusing as it may be. They continue to try to do it on their own. So it's important that, that Paul is, is, is recognizing that this suffering is not just arbitrary, but it is in order to draw us closer to God. When we continue to sustain that, relying on God, that produces a character within us. And that character produces hope. And hope is the kind of thing that allows us to rely on God. Because hope is the experience that even though my life is upside down, even though I can't see up from down right now, even though... Everything that I thought, even though I thought this relationship was, was solid, even though I thought my health was solid, I thought my job was solid, whatever it may be, once that all goes away, hope is what allows us to actually continue to say that, God, you are good. God, you are trustworthy. And that happens because we have been tested. That happens because we've been tested. So that perseverance produces character, and that character produces hope. And Paul says in verse 5, And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given. Hope, that experience of going through the suffering, of clinging, clinging to God and experiencing God as good and trustworthy, as the kind of God who walks with you and before you in your trials, that experience leads to one not being disappointed because ultimately God is a faithful God. God is a loving God. 
And because we, we know this because we have experienced the pouring out of his love through the Holy Spirit. You see, hope is, is hinging on, on a couple of things here. It's rooted in the fact that, that there is victory, God's victory over sin and death through Jesus' own resurrection. And that mark of the Holy Spirit being poured out into us. And therefore, the experience of love. If we didn't have the assurance of Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection and God's coming again, then we wouldn't have hope because we wouldn't know the end of the story. Hope is the desire for which we do not yet possess, but know that we will. Right, right now, this world is full of a lot of pain and suffering, evil and wicked men and women doing evil and wicked things. We don't have the full kingdom of God yet. But our hope says that our, our actions in vain, our continued perseverance, our love, our forgiveness are not in vain. Because God's kingdom is coming. The manifestation of God's kingdom will occur. And so because of that, hope isn't just an, just a, an insurance policy for us that one day it's going to get better for me. One day I'll, I'll get a new resurrected body. One day I'll be in heaven. One day, one day, one day. It's not just for me. But that hope that we have, that we have experienced, pushes in on our social world, our interactions with, with the world today. Because now I know that God is redeeming and remaking all things new. And therefore I can partner, I can co-work with God in that activity. That when I reach out a hand in friendship, when I forgive, when I am able to extend grace and receive grace, that these are all things that won't return void. We know where the story is heading and we can, we can, continue, we can enter into it. And I think that is a very needed and necessary message in a world today that is so full of uh, news cycles, of death and destruction, of betrayal, mistrust, of relationships that are broken, of bodies that fail us. But we can actually enter into the knowledge that God is at work. Some of you may know that part of my own Christian story involves about two, almost two years of mission work in West Africa. And while I was there, I can honestly stay, say that I, I struggled with despair quite often. Despair being the, the act or the, the belief or the feeling that it's not going to get any better. That God's not at work. That things aren't going to change or get better. I would wake up in the morning and just be inundated with the poverty and the sickness and the heat and the desolation and I would ask myself, is what I'm doing of any value at all? Is the kingdom of God any nearer than it was yesterday or the day before or months before? Am I in any way loving better than I was? And I was tempted at times to, to say I quit. No matter what I do, these kids are still going to get malaria and die. These people out in the village are still going to be malnourished that the education is still not going to be there, that lives will still be broken. 
but hope doesn't disappoint. God's gift through the Holy Spirit is one that doesn't return void. That we continue to cling in those moments of suffering. Rather than rejecting the notion that God is at work, we continue to trust that even though it doesn't feel like it, even though I can't see any difference maybe right now, that God is at work in my own life and in the life of those around me. And that's what hope is. That's what hope, that's how hope allows us to continue on in the midst of what would seem otherwise a hopeless situation. Now, this, uh, this past semester, I actually had the opportunity to, to teach at uh, my alma mater, North Park University. And I, I've been used to, to lecturing for about an hour and five, hour and ten minutes every day, so I'm going to keep it to a tight 110 for you all, okay? <laughs> but one of the books that we read was The Hobbit, actually. Uh, interestingly enough. And even though it's a children's book, we, we dissected it and looked at a lot of different um, interesting things that are in it. For those of you who may be Tolkien fans or Hobbit fans or maybe have recently seen the movies, there's a scene when the company of dwarves who are going to re- reclaim their homeland go through the, the forest of Mirkwood, which is this dark, uh, this dark forest that they have been warned to stay on the path. Don't, for any reason, go off the path, they said. If you can stay on the path, you'll get through okay. If you, if you, leave, if you stray from the path, bad things will happen. So our company has been in this, in this uh, forest for days now. They're running out of food and water and becoming desperate. Tolkien writes, they, the party, they were a gloomy party that night, and the gloom gathered still deeper. On them in the following days. They had crossed the enchanted stream, but beyond, but beyond it, the path seemed to straggle on just as before. And in the forest, they could see no change. Yet if they had known more about it and considered the meaning of the hunt and the white deer who they had just experienced that appeared upon the path, they would have known that they were at last drawing towards the edge, eastern edge and would soon come if they could have kept up their courage and their hope to thinner trees and places where the sunlight came again. But they didn't. They couldn't keep their hope and they couldn't keep their courage up. And as a result, they, they, they wander off the path. They get captured by spiders and the adventure continues. But because they weren't able to look and see the signs of hope all around them, this, this white deer that appears in the midst of a dark forest... They weren't able to interpret their lives, their journey properly. You see, hope allows you to see not just your circumstances, but beyond your circumstances to the greater meaning going on in this world and how you are a part in that journey. That's what hope allows us to do. I'm going to invite my wife up actually now because we're thinking about hope and how that plays out in our own lives. I'm going to give... Uh, Pastor Elise, the opportunity to share briefly how hope uh, informed her own life. It was the summer of 2010, and I was between my first and second year of seminary. I thankfully decided to take the summer off and live at home. And I had just headed out the door to write a paper on Soren Kierkegaard, When my mom called me back and she said, come home now. I walked into the door and was greeted with the news. 
your brother Casey has died. In this moment, it felt like all good had left the world. For the first time in my life, I wondered if I would survive, if I could continue to breathe when the pain felt all-consuming and would not stop. My world was without hope. In the days and weeks and months preceding Casey's death, I had never requested the Lord's presence more. I asked for eyes to see God in the midst of my suffering. And in a very tangible way, this was granted to me. And hope returned. A few weeks after my brother's death, I went to Mount St. Helens with my mom, niece, and nephew. My mom was going stir-crazy in the house as we wept all day, and she insisted, we must go to the mountain. As we journeyed to the mountain, I was struck by how beautiful everything was around it. We drove along the treetops, looked down on the hummocks, the wildflowers, and the streams that flowed in front of the mountain. It was a spectacular day, not a cloud in the sky, warm, and the mountain looked absolutely majestic. We walked along the trails and then took a break to the observatory to watch a movie about that day in 1980 when the mountain erupted. They show a picture of the mountain before, which looks as majestic as it did that day in 2010. However, strikingly different landscape. And then on this video, we saw the mountain explode. As the ash and the lava burst from within, it rushed down the side of the mountain and consumed everything within proximity. A huge dark cloud covered the sky, and ash destroyed every living thing. Scientists said they would not make any grandiose plans to restore the mountain. But indeed, the very ash which destroyed the mountain's life had the nutrients within it to restore it. What they needed to do was wait. So they waited and waited and waited. And slowly but surely, life returned to the mountain. Today, Mount St. Helens is beautiful but it still holds the remnants that something terrible happened. Part of the mountain is blown off. Trees that once lived lie on the ground as reminders that something bad had taken place. But there is something breathtaking about the glory that the mountain still exists. The beauty did not return overnight. It has taken years. But because those who entrusted to care for the mountain, trusted in the ash, something they could not understand but believed would restore the mountain to glory, over time saw the fulfillment of what they had put their confidence in. As we left the mountain that day, I looked out the window and began to weep. I looked over at my mom at one point and said, Our lives erupted, and we are covered in ash. We look dead, but I hope life will return to us one day. And slowly over time, this same ash that seemed to suck the life out of me 
began to give me renewed life. My family and I clung to hope, and we survived. Hope, which does not disappoint, has been poured out into our lives by the Holy Spirit, is the very thing that allows us to continue on when our lives are covered in ash, to believe that that very same ash is what will restore our lives. The act of of death on the cross by Jesus is the very act that brings life to all. That's the story of the Christian message. That is what we have to hope in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, how it speaks to us. God, we, we pray that we may be transformed by it, that we may become more hopeful, loving followers of you, that we know that because we have been justified, we are at peace with you, God, and therefore we can be workers with you. God, I pray for those of, you, of, of us in this room right now who desperately need your hope. God, pour it out through your Holy Spirit. Let us experience your love, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.